Bienvenidos and welcome to episode 9 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, joined, as always, by the gentacular Jonah Birch, hey. the Siegfried and Roy of Sports Talk. You can follow <laughs> us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email us any thoughts or questions you may have at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Jonah, I know that sometimes my adjectives are a bit random, so I wanted to make sure that you knew gentacular is not an insult. Yeah, can you define that for me, please? <laughs> it means yeah. pertaining to breakfast. Um, that's that's literally nice. all that it means. So, Jonah, nice. I want to know, in the future socialist paradise that we are all waiting for, what kind of breakfasts can we expect in this future? <laughs> you know, it would be uh, American breakfast for everyone, right? You know, <laughs> everyone around the world loves the the American pancakes, the, particularly the lumberjack, something that I think all, all cultures would benefit from incorporating, you know, as, as much food as possible. Also, I'm wondering if we're Siegfried and Roy, which one am I? Am I Siegfried or Roy? And which do I want to be? Uh, officially, that will depend on the Twitter poll, which I will post as soon as the show is over. So the people nice. will decide who is Siegfried and who is Roy. Our producer, as always, Connor Gildes, will be the tiger. Kind of quiet and dangerous in the corner, but not to be underestimated. In today's episode, we will talk about Capitalism, college sports, possibly a little NBA. And I will introduce our guest that we're very lucky to have this week. Our guest's work has appeared in Jacobin, Time, The Guardian, The Daily Beast, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. He is a professor of sociology at King's University College at Western University. His areas of interest include critical sociology and criminology, sport, punishment, terrorism, and radicalization studies. He is one of the three Triforces who make up the End of Sport pod, along with Nathan Coleman-Lamb and Johanna Mellis. And our guest lives in London, Ontario, Canada, making him our second international guest. Jacobin Sports Show cannot be stopped crossing the globe. Woo! Welcome to the pod, Derek Silva. Derek, how are you doing? Uh, very well. It's a beautiful day here in London, Ontario, Canada. It's probably the nicest day of 2021, so I'm hoping things look up from here. Our vaccine program is starting to get moving, so it looks it looks good from up here. So I'm happy to be here. Are you a native Londoner, Derek? Are you from London, Ontario? No, I'm I'm from. I was born in Ajax, Ontario, which is the other side of Toronto, oh. on the east side of Toronto, but 40 minutes away. Okay. Um, so. Uh, it's probably the GTA or or Durham. Uh, it's a it's an interesting place. Hmm, nice, Derek. You are one of the three members of the End of Sport Pod. I wanted to ask you just a little bit about that, um, in particular, how you and your co-hosts all came together. What led to the pod? What would you say is the pod's, you know, purpose in the world? Can you just tell us a little bit about End of Sport? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the sort of origin story of the end of sport can go back to 2019 um, in the fall. Nathan and I met for the first time at the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference. I had read his book. Um, he, he wrote a book called Game Misconduct um, about head trauma in hockey and being a, a critical sports scholar. I had read the book. So we kind of connected and we started throwing around ideas about the podcast or about potentially doing a podcast, something just, you know, ideas. And then Fast forward a few months to uh, February, um, March, and the end of the world um, kind of happened, and the pandemic took over, and we immediately touched base again and thought, like, 
one, we've got a lot of extra time, like in our basements, like we've got a lot of extra time to do things, but also perhaps now more than ever, we need to think up, think critically about the role of sport in the world and what is happening and how, how sport reflects broader issues, broader political issues, cultural issues, social issues. Uh, and then in a sort of back and forth on Twitter, we decided to, to start the podcast. We we're talking about names and we we're looking around and we're literally like we're existing in the only time that either of us can remember where there is no sport. We are literally in the end of sport right now. Um, this was right after the the NBA kind of shut the world down. Um, and then we kind of just went from there. And our first episode came out on April 12th. 2020. Um, and it was just Nathan and I in the first few episodes, we were interviewing people. We thought we wanted to provide interviews with critical voices in this field. Um, so we were talking to people like Jules Boykoff, uh, Michael Shu, who's, who's a, a, um, a, a board of regents member, but critical of exploitation in college sports. We were talking to all these people. And then we had, uh, I, we actually reached out to Johanna Mellis for her take her historical take on sports history and she came on the show and just destroyed everything it was just brilliant it was wonderful and we immediately we have a, a google doc going that we talk to while we're podcasting the three of us and nathan and i were like we need to ask johanna to be on the show in that document <laughs> while we were talking to her um so she was amazing um brilliant her episode was awesome and she jumped on board and ever since we've been sort of a a, a group of three um tackling this together and we've had some really great responses there's been some amazing people who have been generous with their time to come and talk to us but the overall project is to explore and illuminate the harms that exist in sport to to move away from this idea that like sport is this incredible always positive always useful thing in society and to critique it a little bit to highlight how sport actually reifies reinforces and, and sustains and in some ways contributes explicitly to social inequality discrimination harm um, and a variety of of social issues. So that's the kind of mo of the podcast. Um, and and I think it's grown in in some into something even beyond the podcast. Nathan and I are now co-authoring a, a book mm -hmm. um, called The End of College Football with UNC Press. We've written, as you mentioned off the top, a, a bunch of public pieces in um, in Jacobin and Time and The Guardian. Um, so it's kind of grown into this entire public sociology project, if you will. Um, and we've been really happy with how it's how it's gone. Nice. Now, you know, I know you guys have been uh, in the press recently more than uh, you, you had been uh, before. More than we uh, would like to be as well. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, listening to your podcast about this, the episode, I got that impression. Um, and, uh, you know, it was was sparked off the, this controversy by a really vicious, awful attack from uh, ESPN hosts on, you know, I think your co-hosts in, in particular, and then his followers, from what I understand, you know, went, went after you in a, a pretty brutal way. I'm wondering, not so much about the controversy itself, but, but what was the issue that really sparked this off? And can you tell us a little bit about how that debate unfolded on Twitter? 
Yeah. So part of our, our project has been to kind of call out sports media when they do shitty sports media things. Um, and in particular, the college sports media that tend to be, and, and let me preface this by saying there are some amazing people working in sports media. We've had them on guests of the show, people like Dave Zirin, Shereen Ahmed, Hamal Javeri, so many awesome people doing great work. Um, uh, Abdul Malik up here in Canada, whom is, has contributed to uh, Jacobin as well. Um, some people doing amazing work. But there's also this big group of people in specifically in college sports that are that are simply reproducing that system and really they're complicit in in the harm um, and the exploitation of athletic campus workers that we talk about on the podcast. So these people who benefit directly, directly from the labor of predominantly black athletes who are the sports media and they just are just apologists for that entire system they can they do everything they can do to make sure to sustain and to keep the system going people like the indiana espn reporter that we had a sort of tiff with people like john rothstein people like seth davis and seth greenberg these are people who continuously defend a system of exploitation that massively and disproportionately impacts are young racialized athletic workers. Um, so we, as we kind of do, we go on Twitter or part of our sort of project on Twitter and our public sociology work is to actually show how these sort of apologist takes from sports media are, are wrong, are uh, not factual and not based in sort of reality. And that's what we are doing. Kind of crit going online, critiquing um, these takes. And that's how it started with Nathan critiquing this Indiana ESPN reporter for a really bad take that basically said that campus athletic workers were paid and they're not being exploited. And Nathan was like, no, they are being exploited. Uh, and um, borrowing from David Berry's work that suggests that Duke basketball players are worth anywhere from 140000 to $4 million mm -hmm. to the actual school. So he's showing evidence, science, scientific work to say like, no, these people are exploited. And right. th this sports reporter just couldn't take it and started sidestepping the issue and saying, calling out certain people on Twitter for being like sexist and racist that, that they weren't. And then Johanna Mellis stepped in, Dr. Johanna Mellis, and said like, that is a, a sort of mischaracterization of what happened. And then he started going off on Johanna. And then the next day on his radio show is when it kind of all kind of blew up to a, an extreme level. This is all just on Twitter and the Twitterverse. Right, right. And then the, so yeah, the next day it was, it was um, on his radio show. He went off and started um, publicly doxing um, Nathan Coleman Lamb um, by spelling out his name on the, ep on the show. And also uh, talking about his office hours, like several times mentioning his specific office hours at Duke saying that he was an overpaid professor for full disclosure. He is a non tenure track um, faculty member. Um, we know about the adjunctification of higher education. We know about precarious workers. He is not one of these professors who has this sort of six figure income. And this ESPN person was, was jumping on and saying, basically he only has one hour, one hour a week of office hours and he makes six figures and he's overpaid. 
blah, 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 the, the sort of same critique of higher education that professors just sit around and do nothing um, and get paid handsomely. Um, Wait till and- he finds out about Rape My Professor, right? I mean, you know, he's really going to give some negative reviews. So, you know, it sounds like Twitter is bad enough. What really made this an awful situation was that it got translated to sort of the real world via, uh, you know, sports radio. And from from what I understand, correct me on this, the, the kind of focal point originally of, of the discussion was about this Duke forward, Jalen Johnson. Yeah who was a real, you know, sort of a, a, a phenom coming out of high school. I have Dick Vitale's voice in my head right now. Uh, and then announced at some point, uh, you know, this season that he wasn't going to play. I don't think he played at all for Duke in the end. And that he was going to go straight to the draft. And there were voices who were like, you know, the kind of the thing you expect, right? The standard line, oh, he's quitting on his team or he doesn't care about education, whatever it is. You know, these players are coming out too young. They're too uh, self-absorbed. What about uh, the fans, the team? And what does that tell us, I guess, is my question about, I mean, in this year of COVID, to have this line still, you know, be coming up, what what can we say about this debate uh, about Jalen Johnson in that case? Yeah, I think you're you're completely right. And I actually met... I didn't mention that. That was how the debate kind of really started. It was it was a critique of people critiquing Jalen Johnson as if he had quit. Exactly what, what you mentioned. And and again, this ESPN reporter was not the first or only person doing this. Um, there were others who who traced back his entire career and talked about how he transferred out of high school, how he didn't play in the American, the All American game. And these are all signs of quote unquote quitting. And we're pointing out that that's bullshit. Like I can swear on this podcast, right? It's actually it's it, it's a it's a requirement of the guests. So you, <laughs> okay, you nice. Get one in there. Nice. <laughs> so it it's it, it was just simply it was simply bullshit because how can you quit on something that is simultaneously massively exploiting you? It, it, it's it to me it doesn't make any sense when you are providing your labor. Um, your relatively uncompensated labor or or not compensated to the degree that others are compensated for for not putting in the labor, how can that ever be seen as quitting? And that's where the sports media comes in because sports media is creating that representation. Sports media has the the active role in creating that understanding of these campus athletic workers as being, something that we can exploit, that they must be loyal to the team. They must be loyal to the system because we are affording them a college education, a free room and board, or whatever the sort of narrative is. But we argue that that's completely bullshit because not only is the value of the um, the education not equal to the revenue being generated, but also we question the very basis of the education that these folks are able to get because of the system. No fault to to the athletic laborers. There's no fault to a, an athletic worker who has to train all day, play a game at night, and then gets back into their dorm at 3 a.m. for sleeping, if they so choose, at an 8 a.m. class. That's not the fault of a worker. That's the fault of a system that continues to massively exploit those people. So this entire thing started 
because we are trying to highlight that and we're trying to get that through the psyche of people that you know what like these people are exploited and they're they're exploited even more when we think of a global pandemic on top of everything else pre-pandemic these people were already exploited in violent ways now we're adding a massive health crisis on top of that an unknown health crisis on top of that even in the fall when when there was a rush back to playing college football we didn't know anything about this virus in the grand scheme of things we still probably don't really know that much about the long-term effects mm -hmm. of this virus and yet we were immediately rushing back to sport in general which you can say, oh, professional sport is one thing, co collegiate sport is another. I would agree. It probably is. But in in the college realm, in the, in, in the context of college sport, these are people who are not being paid, not receiving remuneration that equals the amount of work they are putting in and the amount of revenue they generate. So to me, the fact that we rushed back NCAA so quickly, predominantly the revenue gen or only the revenue generating sport actually says everything you need to know about advanced capitalism in society. Everything you need to know about how we put money before bodies and even more money before racialized bodies. I want to get into um, some specific examples, some highlights of some of the lowlights that are going on right now as far as exploitation. I think the purpose being we don't ever want what is really insanity to become normalized as acceptable. So I think it's worth highlighting um, some of the stories that are happening right now. I've known all these things kind of in an abstract sense, but when I started teaching, um, I started working as a professor at a Division One school in 2013, and not a major D1 school, like, but we had a couple of, I had some baseball players drafted and there was football too. And I was shocked when I started working there at how negative and down and overwhelmed my student athletes. I had, a, I did a lot of work with student athletes specifically, and they were completely overwhelmed and seeing the reality of their lives. And like you were saying, Derek, like they have to wake up at six o'clock for practice. They have to be at this meeting. They have to be back at practice. They have to, they have all these things going from six to 11 PM. Their day is they have no freedom over anything. And then at that point, yeah, like you said, they're free to try to study or sleep or fit in what they can. And this wasn't, Ohio State or Michigan or, you know, this was this was just a, a, a Stony Brook University on Long Island. But still, you could see these these inequalities and you could see the students struggling to fit themselves into what felt like, well, I've got to I've got to fit into this machine and 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 not even yeah. seeing like you don't. Um, but there's a few things going on, um, some of which I want to I want to contrast two two stories, one of which has to do with some of the experiences that players men's basketball players have had during the pandemic at some historical black colleges versus what just went down um, at kansas university with less miles and i think the contrast helps to highlight some of what we're talking about as far as privileges and assumptions um, that exist in differentials so in the southwestern athletic conference there's a school um north carolina central uh, north carolina central's male basketball players according to their athletic director ingrid mccree they had to quarantine into a separate dorm if they wanted to play, which meant they weren't allowed to go outside for up to two weeks. I couldn't even leave the dorm for up to two weeks. Um, NC Central's coach, Lavelle Moten, 
said as of a week ago, his team had practiced only 11 times all year with the full roster. From mid-December until late January, they went 50 days without playing a game. They've been forced to quarantine four different times. Of the Southwest Athletic Conference, they have 119 non-conference games this year. Um, Only 16 or 13% are home games. Only 5% are actual home games against Division I teams. These are schools that take sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars to go on the road and get killed by some much bigger program. And they define it as necessary because that's what they think they need funding wise to compete with these other big time programs. The Delta Devils, they have lost twelve straight games to start the season. They played all twelve on the road. So they've opened the season with a fourteen game road trip that covers thirteen states. Now just think of that reality. And we're going to contrast that and, and like you're saying There's such a sense of possession and entitlement to these bodies and these performances and this notion that like, yeah, but they have to play because there's a whole swarth of, of, of society that can't be entertained unless it's these people doing it and the system can't operate unless it's these people being exploited. And so what we're seeing is not new. It's just kind of further down the continuum of what is interpreted as normal, but it's really fucked up. Now, Contrast that to what's happening with Les Miles. Les Miles was hired at Kansas to take over the football team. A few days ago, he was placed on administrative leave after um, news came out of uh, an internal report, I think, at LSU, his old college, um, about an investigation into inappropriate conduct that Miles had with um, student assistants and, and other campus athletic workers. To last night, Kansas announced that they had mutually agreed to part ways, which anyone who's ever been fired knows what that means. In the report from LSU, this Les Miles is a grown-ass, millionaire, many times over, very powerful white man. Les Miles was accused of texting female students, taking them to his condo alone, um, kissing a student, suggesting that they go to a hotel later so he could help with her career. The athletic That's depart- mentorship, he called it, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Right? Really? He was just being a mentor. That's being a good mentor. The athletic department staff says that female student workers who worked with the football team, Miles wanted them to be, quote, attractive, blonde, and fit. Existing employees who did not meet this criteria should be either have their hours reduced or be terminated. Now, what's fascinating to me, maybe it shouldn't be fascinating, um, Kansas and Miles both released statements after he was, he mutually parted ways, and... A rhetorical analysis of both statements is pretty interesting. Kansas' statement, which is from Athletic Director Jeff Long, expressed sympathy for the following groups. Kansas University, Kansas University football fans, and, quote, everyone involved with the football program. The statement references the talent on the team. It references the need to win football games. It references how they will use an outside firm not to better vet against this sort of thing happening again, but to find a new coach. Les Miles' statement mentions what a difficult day it is for himself, his family, and the football program. He mentions that he loves the university, he enjoyed being the head coach, there's a bright future for the student-athletes. There's not one single mention of any of the students, the young women, the people at different ends of power differentials in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of their position within the university. There's not one single mention about the actual event that is the reason why Kansas is letting this man go in the first place. For Kansas, for that program to land a coach like Les Miles, that's a public relations dream. Something terrible has to happen for it to end. 
There's no mention of it. My question to you, Derek, I don't know if there's an answer, but it's just sticking with me today. A lot of times people will talk about college athletics as this kind of privileged bubble environment. We have this notion that like the athletes are living the stream, you know, like you, like, like you were referencing, they get paid just to go play sports, which we know is nonsense. Do you feel that the inequalities that we see in college athletics between, we'll just call them the haves and the have-nots to simplify the differentials, do you feel that that is widening? Because on the one hand, the NCAA seems to be kind of a fading power in, in a lot of ways. And on the other hand, we know that a cornered animal is always the most dangerous. Do you think what we're seeing is parallel to what happens in larger society, somehow more pronounced or maybe somehow even less? I think that's a, a great question. And I, I want to maybe push back just a little bit on the idea that the NCAA is is maybe losing some some power or or like is like faint like falling back a little bit i would i would argue i don't see much evidence of that mm. i i think if anything the ncaa is is as strong or stronger today than it has been in a while and we saw that with how it uh sorry to kind of go off in a little bit of a tangent but how it yep. successfully completely bulldozed union attempts in the fall yeah. And and, and, I'm, and I'm, we wrote about this in the, in the Guardian um, and basically how they were the perfect union busters for, and, and this is in the context of labor, brilliant labor mobilizations in professional sports, in the NBA, mm -hmm. tennis, um, the WNBA, brilliant work people were doing and made change, forced change for their working conditions as they went back into bubbles uh, or, or were, were returning to play. On the heels of that, campus athletic workers decided to start speaking out and to start trying to form some sort of coalition. Um, and, and this is college athletic unity. Um, like we want to play and we are united. These, these movements that happened. And then once those movements really picked up a lot of steam, we saw the cancellation of the big 10 and the PAC 12. And we're like, holy shit, holy shit. This is the moment in sport. This is where the NCAA is going to, to feel the burn from everything they've been doing. And then silence for the, the, the groups were kind of, they no longer had this centralized goal of having big say in their working conditions. And within a couple weeks of that, like the, the sort of slowing down of that uh, athletic mobilization and that labor mobilization, Oh, surprise, surprise, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are coming back. Hooray, mm -hmm. everything's happy, and they play. Mm -hmm. So so I, I think I, I'm not certain that the NCAA is losing power, um, but it certainly is reflective of broad systems of society and, and broad issues relating specifically to uh, systemic racism and white supremacy and the racialized exploitation of predominantly black bodies, but also racialized Hispanic bodies, a variety of and indigenous bodies. Um, and even we can talk a, a whole discussion about gender as well. And I think that warrants a very specific discussion. Mm -hmm. But college sports and the Les Miles instance and the Greg McDermott case, which maybe we can talk about as well, mm -hmm. these all point to how we treat certain people in society, certain privileged 
bodies and how we allow the exploitation and the discrimination and the and violence towards other bodies who matters and who matters less it was funny it was not funny it was ironic and sad that in that in both of those statements that you mentioned matthew that they put they didn't talk about the victims they didn't talk about what happened they actually gaslighted the entire everyone who was reading that by suggesting or by downplaying that any of these were actually issues but they did mention that we need to win football games mm -hmm. and that is the analogy for society we don't care about putting bodies through harm in harm's way in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. We don't mind head trauma. We don't care about CTE. Um, none of these things truly matter to us as a system. We care about winning football games and winning basketball games. And that is part and parcel of our advanced capitalist society, of our advanced uh, capitalist society that puts money over bodies, money over identities, money over people. Um, so I think this is a perfect case study for, for analyzing society is just looking at how these two call them have and have not groups are treated very differently, very, very differently. Just to back up for a second, cause you know, I'm not sure everyone listening, I mean, I'm, people probably have a sense, but, um, just about the, the feudal nature of the NCAA and of college athletics, like Matthew and I. We come from the Northeast. Col you know, college sports are not as big where I come from in Boston. He comes from New York as they are in other parts of the country. We're used to some evil, evil sports owners. I mean, you know, Matthew writes about the Knicks. We make jokes about James Dolan, Cablevision, you know, Skyon of the Cablevision Empire and uh, wonderful musician uh, <laughs> once a week. Uh, but... I the NCAA is like a whole other level. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars made off, you know, college basketball, college football every single year. These, these kids not only do not get paid any of that money. I mean, supposedly they're, they're getting compensated via uh, the college scholarships. And, but as, you know, as you guys talked about, it doesn't cover even a fraction of what they would get paid if they could negotiate on their own behalf, right? So they're not getting anything from it. But not only that, if they take, you know, a gift from someone, let's say a donor to a school, it's their ass, right? Like they're, yeah. they're the ones who are getting suspended and, uh, you know, they get in trouble, of course. Um, so the unionization drive that you've talked about, I think has been going on the last five or six years. It felt like it was picking up some momentum, the demand for college athletes to be able to unionize. And now you're saying it really got crushed, basically, in the last year. I mean, I remember even in, was it 2014, when UConn won the NCAA basketball championship and Shabazz Napier was talking about how you, yep. they needed a union because yep. he was going to bed hungry yep. while, he, you know, while he's on TV every night uh, yep. you know, playing basketball. So uh, it felt like there was some momentum around this. And now, you know, basically that's kind of stalled. Is that right? 
I, I, I would say that there is still is this momentum. This momentum has been building since 2014, really picked up in 2015 when Kane Coulter, the quarterback from Nebraska, led the uh, led an actual unionization charge that went to the National Labor Board. And it was ultimately quashed. Um, and we we've we have that conversation up on the end of sport uh, as well. And uh, yeah, and, and and it really was picking up steam or seemingly so picking up steam for the past several years. Um, and I think what the pandemic has done, like it has in many contexts, has to some degree quashed the momentum. And in 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 a simultaneous move, it also has justified new modalities or new forms of neoliberal governance, right? It's created new ways in which we can justify exploitation of the working class based on financial exigency, based on, oh, we don't know, we're, we're in a crisis. We need to, to allow these things because how are we going to survive? Like we need the NCAA tournament because how are our college campuses going to survive? Don't let's not talk about the Disneyfication of college campuses across the the country and the, the continent. Let's not talk about how the years and decades long public austerity measures that have that have pummeled our universities and made them rely on having to Disneyfy their campuses in order to attract students and then make them pay more. Let's not talk about that. No, right now we need these, we need college football, we need college basketball, we need the tournament. And it, that extends into the pros as well. It happened over the weekend, the, the NBA All-Star game. I think, Matthew, you wrote about this. Like, that was a cash grab. Straight In up. In all intents and purposes, that was a cash grab. That's what all of these things are. And, like, our project is to highlight that. It's, it's kind of obvious that it's a cash grab. But who is systematically exploited? That's, I think, the center question. I we we can all talk about the exploitation and and about powerful rich mostly white guys um, who are making most of the money, but like at the end of the day, we want to give voice to the people who are on the other side of that. We're talking to to athletic laborers. We're talking to basketball players, NCAA football players. Those are the people that we are learning from, hearing, and trying to amplify rather than the rest of the college sports media system that wants to amplify the voice of Les Miles and hey. Coach K and Coach Calipari and, and the rest of them, right? Yeah, speaking of um, who has voice and who doesn't, and I want to... I want to point out again a couple other stories um, relating to this issue that, that Derek has just brought up. And to remind people that these are not aberrations in the system. These aren't anomalies or the system not functioning. The exploitation is the point. And two more stories coming out of college sports that speak to this. One, um, Derek just alluded to the Derek to the Greg McDermott um, situation. I'll get to that. But first, to juxtapose with that, there was an incident at um, the University of Texas where multiple football players um, said that officials told them that they were required to stay on the field for the traditional crowd sing-along to the song The Eyes of Texas, um, despite the song's association with campus minstrel shows. And some of the players reported that they were warned that um, refusal to do this could result in them being blacklisted from jobs from donors in Texas. Um, and, and Derek just spoke about, you know, the voice of the actual exploited. So 
uh, a junior there, a football player named DeMarvian Overshone, had this quote. He said, it was really eye-opening. These are some high-power people that come to see you play, and they can keep you from getting a job in the state of Texas. It was shocking that they said that. To this day, I still think back to that moment. They really used that as a threat to get us to try to do what they wanted us to do. A second player said that the athletic director, Crystal Conti, told the players that the donors were unhappy and threatening to pull financial support. And that Del Conti said, um, the player said, quote, Del Conti kept saying, these guys provide this for you. And we have donors talking about pulling out money, stopping their, their donations. Everything about that is so abhorrently disgusting on, on levels that we would need like a four-hour podcast just to, just yeah. to brush into. Um, but I want to, again, so I want to contrast that it's 2021 and a predominantly black football team at a, at a major university is being told while they're playing during a pandemic to stay on the field and shut up and not dribble, but I guess block while the crowd sings a song that alludes to minstrel shows. I want to contrast that with what happened with Greg McDermott um, at Creighton. McDermott, um, if you blinked, you might have missed it. He was suspended for three days for um, saying the following quote to his players. Guys, we got to stick together. We need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. So within 72 hours, McDermott was reinstated. And I was thinking, and you just talked about this with Derek, when I watch, when I used to, I don't anymore, but when you would watch a channel like CNN or MSNBC or any of the others, and you would see them absolutely refusing to ask a politician a tough question, there's some basic recognition of like, well, they're trading for access. They, they don't want to alienate someone by asking a tough question, so they're, they're just going to you know behave this way instead. Is the college sports media complex in a similar position? Because there's a, there's a kind of, there's a seeming paradox to me here it's a little different in college, but there's generally such affinity for the players in these team sports and football and basketball. And at the professional level, they're enormous celebrities. Why does the sports media complex in college also seem to treat some of these, you know, like Miles or McDermott with, with such a hands-off policy? Is it the same thing? Is it, well, we want access and we don't want to risk alienating one of these people by asking a tough question? Is it, is it that parallel to what happens with the kind of corporate political speech in the press? I think in part, in part it certainly is. Um, it's if you piss off the people within these athletic departments, are those people going to come to you with stories, with breaking news, with whatever? But it's also that these people have a vested, like they are stakeholders in the system. They themselves, their entire careers are built off of that same exploitation. That say the 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 protection of that system directly benefits them. There would be no CBS football co like college football correspondent if there wasn't a college football game to to uh, to analyze and to talk about. So these people they're protecting the system because it simultaneously protects themselves. And you actually bring up a really good point in like how. How are they being complicit in these two cases, in the Greg McDermott and the, and the University of Texas? I have never in my life seen something so obviously, abhorrently racist that has been said that is called racial undertones more often. Literally hey. suggesting that these athletes need to, need to get 
step onto the plantation is inherently racist. Call it what it is. All of the sports media are not all. There are some amazing sports media people out there. A large segment of the sports media population is continuously referring to the the Greg McDermott thing as like oh it was racially charged or there were racial undertones racially to that insensitive. And, yes just <laughs> gaslighting just gaslighting yep. everyone yep. into thinking like that's not racist and and if anyone's interested follow my colleague Nathan Coleman Lamb NKA Lamb on Twitter He's he is on this. He is literally tagging every single time he reads it and tweeting about it. So if you just go through his threads and see how many are doing this because they're complicit, mm -hmm. because they want the system there, not just because they're quote unquote fans. It's not this like nice, great thing. Oh, they just really lo love the sport. No, they, they know that if the sport dies, so does their career. Mm -hmm. That if the sport isn't there, that they are threatened and People will do a lot of wild things when they're threatened. Jonah. You know, but before we move on, I just want to say, Matthew, I feel like it's our job to, to have the poll about what should replace Eyes on Texas. Which Texas rapper should fans of the University of Texas be, be you know, singing? I say Scarface, but I'm open to Air. Any suggestions, you know, our listeners have, send them in, share with us, and we'll, we'll bring that to the board of... Regents at the University of Texas. Right? JackEvansports yeah. at gmail.com. Um, yeah. Very nicely done. Um, so again, relating to this this media question and, and to show that it's not just at the so-called amateur level, but uh, the growth testing happens even in the pros. And Derek, a, a question that uh, Joan and I always struggle with is how it is that the NBA, for some reason, is, is generally regarded as this very progressive social institution when anyone who studies it for five minutes it's history or past or present can see there's no that's not the case but um to, to narrow that down a bit um there was a story about um tom gores who owns the detroit pistons he also owns a company called securus technologies which sets um the prices for can help set the prices for phone calls for prison inmates these phone calls can be exorbitant sometimes as much as 15 dollars for a 15 minute call and and again we keep coming back to this, but this might be the most disgusting thing that I've read today. And, and I read a lot of disgusting stuff to prepare for this interview because we have during the pandemic, a man who's already a billionaire who is profiting specifically in a, in an area of society that disproportionately impacts black people and brown people and poor people and incarcerated people is inhumane to the 10th degree. But Tom Gores, um, I covered a, a preseason game that the Knicks had in Detroit, and I, I told Jonah about this, I think, weeks ago. Um, it was before any fans were allowed in the building. So the, the arena is completely empty, and during timeouts, the camera would pan to um, the, the, the stands, which were empty, and there were Detroit Pistons dancers, like, dancing in the, kind of in the, in the aisles for a non-existent audience, and it was killing me that I'm watching during a pandemic, these people who are not, like, they're not getting a living wage for this kind of job. They have to come to the arena and literally dance for nobody because their owner, who's worth billions of dollars, can't just write them a check to carry them through. So that's Tom Gora's in a nutshell. Then you have this story. And then, um, thankfully, there was an activist. Uh, her name is Bianca Tylek. 
and she's the founder and executive of Worth Rises, which is a New York nonprofit. They ran a full-page ad in the New York Times after they heard about Gora's business with Securus, and the ad said, if Black Lives Matter, directing it to the NBA, if Black Lives Matter, what are you doing about Detroit Pistons owner Tom Gora's? Great question, fair question. Gora's sounding kind of less Miles-level delusional, not only, I'll read you the response, it's, it's not only, the whole thing is gross, but he, he, he channels that audaciousness you will sometimes hear from people where they act as if the black community is some kind of a stand-in for his maldeveloped conscience. So this is what Gore has said in response to the ad that questioned um, his, his involvement with uh, Securus. He said, it hurts. I'm not going to tell you that it doesn't. I have a family, but then I always kind of look at things and say, life's happening for a reason, and you're put in that place to make a difference. So maybe that's a blessing. Then I also think about people, especially in the African-American community, who have gone through a lot more judgment and pain than I have. They might judge me a certain way. And then I say, get your shit together, Tom. Let's go fight this fight. Like, fuck you. Like, not only are these the people that you are on an everyday, 24-7, 365 degree level oppressing, but then you're going to cite them as like, you know... Like, like they're Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder and they're reminding him how to be a better person. So Tyler had a good response to this, um, pointing out that we're not asking Goras to come save people. We're asking you to stop taking from them. And I think this yeah. is relevant to the college thing. She said to stop hurting them, to stop harming our communities. So before you can argue that you want to do something good and all these things, you have to stop doing the harm that you're trying to unwind. Those two things can't operate in the same space. Is there, Derek, is there reason for optimism, we'll take it back to college specifically, that organizations, grassroots activism, alliances that are forming, or just public pressure, is there evidence for optimism that it's not just people seeking lip service apologies, but that there is actual addressing and redressing of these oppressive activities? That are going on from I know that's a I know that's a very large question. Yeah. I guess what I mean is from when you first and let me put it this way: from when you first got into this discipline to where you are now, do you feel worse? Mm-hmm. Do you feel better, or do you feel roughly the same? Yeah, uh, you're right. It's a it's a a big um, tough question. I would say that I'm I'm not overly optimistic, and and I'll tell you why. We've seen some movements in the NCAA and in collegiate um, athletics to get athletic unpaid athletic workers something something more than they've had than they have had in the past we've seen in the last 10 years a cost of living allowance which is basically a stipend added to room and board that's like what what seems like a win and now we're seeing it in in terms of the legal, um, framework changes for name, image, and likeness. Um, and we're starting to see opportunities for unpaid athletic workers to be able to benefit off of their name, image, and likeness. Why I'm not optimistic is because I think both of these are the great distraction in in um, college athletics. They are intended to pacify people to get off the back of the NCAA and member institutions who continue in the exploitation. They're meant to distract, to, to get the media attention away, to get public attention away and say like, no, these athletes can go and get an endorsement deal if they want. 
but then they actually forget that they can only get an endorsement deal with the same companies that their member institution has already already has agreements. But when like that's not how free market capitalism works. When you're forced into buying a product or you're forced into a contract, you have very little leverage to seek out your market value. So it doesn't really work like that in mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't actually see anything like floodgates opening up. And I don't even think it's a, it's a question of like pay student athletes, don't pay student athletes. I, I think it's like de like treat collegiate athletic workers as if they are part of the same capitalist system that you treat everyone else. Mm -hmm. And simply it's just not happening. It's and and that's why I'm not overly optimistic. One thing I did want to mention: you mentioned the 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 prison um, and and the, the Goraz thing. People fail, or a lot of people don't recognize that in Canada, the Toronto Raptors are owned in part thirty something percent equal minority owners of the Toronto Raptors of Bell Canada, a, a major telecom, one of the three monopoly um, telecom. Um, companies in Canada and Bell runs basically the entire prison phone line in infrastructure in Canada. Wow. Like, and then, and it, it's got all of these layers. This it's the same issue here. Like Bell owns that. And they'll talk about, you know, black lives matter. Like the Raptors are talking about black lives matter. Bell comes out with this, like in Canada, it's called Bell. Let's talk day. It's supposed to raise awareness. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the twit, the, the Twitter handle and it is just, like the definition of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Like they'll tweet about mental health and then they'll crush the mental health of people in that are already suffering from all the, yeah. the problems in incarcerated spaces. And in, in Canada, our, our biggest uh, or our most overrepresented population in, in federal incarceration and provincial are indigenous folks. And we know that there are a variety of mental health concerns in those communities specifically mm -hmm. because of all the other things that happen that mm -hmm. the government and, and private corporations do. But when Bell Canada comes out and, and, and does this, oh, we're donating 20 million to me like mental health. Like it's like that they think it abdicates them from responsibility like from their explicit responsibility in these things. Mm -hmm. um, so, so while you were talking about that, I'm just thinking like, it's, it, it's not just they, like, it's not just in, uh, in Detroit or, or um, with that. It's, it's also in Canada. It's a problem with capitalism. It's yeah. a problem with the, with everywhere. And, um, and, and it's like, it, it's, it's sad. And, and for all of these reasons, I'm not that optimistic <laughs> about, about, about the role of sport in contemporary life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's so interesting what you're saying and I, you make a great point. The part of the argument, at least with the NCAA is, you know, if you are a defender of the free market, why don't you, you should take it seriously, right? Yeah. If you supposedly believe in free market economics, you're saying to these people whose labor is being exploited, no, you are not allowed to seek whatever return you can get for that. You have to just take the shit that we're feeding you. Yeah. I do feel like, though, and tell me if, if you think I'm off base. I mean, I just remember when I was a kid growing up, the environment of like the 1990s, or even the early 2000s, and some of the, the terrible dynamics we saw, you know, around the case your co-hosts, over the last couple of weeks, last week, or you know, with this ESPN reporter, someone like that—that that was everything. It's in, in yeah. you know, in sports talk radio, 
also that was kind of the dominant view of, of sports in the public was, is my sense. And I do wonder if there's been a shift. So there's more willingness at least to think about, to talk about the situation of, you know, these student athletes to talk about some of the, the racist dynamics that we've, we've been describing here. Does that not make you hopeful at all for the future? Or do you think that that doesn't really exist? I mean, that kind of big picture shift in the terms of debate or something, the way people in the public are willing to talk about this. Yeah, I, th I think that they're, the, I'm optimistic in terms of public cha changing certain parts, certain sections of the, the popular press or even the public will get behind and will understand the the real the depth of these issues, um, but I think the dominant narrative in sport still has like the ear of lots of people. Both it's not just a, it's not a sort of bipartisan thing. It's not just like people on the right love their sports and Bud Light, and people on the left like don't. No, like there are a lot of progressive people who will call themselves progressive that love and don't even think twice about the NCAA. Yep. They don't even think twice about the exploitation. They just turn on the TV mm -hmm. and they're just like, I'm loving this. It's a pandemic. I can sit at home. I've got my drink and I can watch um, these. I can watch Old State U hammer the, the arrival or whatever. So like... I don't think that we're seeing a massive change in in public debate about this. I think we're seeing some vocal vocal people that are heavily in the minority and I think we saw that last week when this person, this ESPN reporter felt like completely in the right, complete that we were like completely wrong that we're a bunch of idiots who have no idea what we're talking about and he doesn't even have to provide evidence for what he's saying. We were providing evidence. We were giving stats, numbers, figures, like peer-reviewed articles and other people are just like, no, you are just, you're, you've lost it. You have no idea what you're talking about. You just hate sports and you're a, a dweeb, a nerd or whatever. Cause we wear glasses. Like th that's what we kind of face. And I just don't think that narrative is changing very much. I don't think like we might be getting away from the overt, the overt, like really harmful and violent things that, that these people are saying. So like Don Cherry up in Canada was taken right. off hockey night in Canada for being a racist, for being ra completely racist for years and decades of racism. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing that a little bit more in certain positions, not Greg McDermott, but in, in media, if you do things like that, you won't be able to continue, but we are still nowhere near the general consensus that there is exploitation going on in, in collegiate athletics. Sure. That is not common at all. And I don't really see that changing very soon, but it's part of our project. It's what I want to change. Yeah, yeah. I want, <laughs> I want people to be having these discussions and, and that's why we go so hard on sports media right. because we know they're sending one message and we want to provide the counter voice. Mm -hmm. We want to, to get people outside of the echo chamber that just says like, these people need to be loyal to the team. Mm -hmm. They only care about the team. They're amateurs. They're quote unquote student athletes. No, we want to say they are not, they are campus athletic workers. 
They are athletic laborers. They are selling their labor to an athletic department. Their labor is athleticism and they're not being paid. They're, they're not being educated and no fault to their own, um, of their own for that. Um, it's a fault of the system. Um, and we want to change that narrative. I have one last question for you, Derek, but I just want to point out to any of the haters who may be listening and think that athletes <laughs> with classes are, are dweebs. I will point out that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, greatest basketball player in history, wore prescription goggles on the court. So hey. take that. Um, Derek, I also wanted to ask you just at the end here about um, the book that you have coming out. Uh, you and Nathan, I believe, have um, a deal with UNC Press for a work titled The End of College Football, Exploitation in the Ivory Tower and on the Gridiron. And I'm going to shout out your editor, Lucas Church, because editors are people too. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> What can yeah. you tell us um, just quickly about a specific catalyst that led you to this project or what you know readers can expect when it might be available? Just anything you want to share about the project at this stage? Yeah, I think the the, the book is still not that close to coming out, so we don't have a date. Um, but I'll give you a sort of um, quick hit on what the book is. It's, it's a part sociology of the NCAA and part polemical call to action. Mm to change not only the system of exploitation and harm in the, in the NCAA, but of higher education more generally. This is a problem of higher education, not just of college athletics or the NCAA. Those two things go hand in hand. You can't get rid of the, you can't fundamentally change the exploitation that exists in the NCAA without fundamentally changing the business model and the ways in which we treat our um, supposedly public institutions increasingly through a corporatist model. So we need to rethink and reimagine how we're going to put, we're going to fund our public institutions, how we're going to make them less profit driven, um, how we are going to de-Disneyfy our campuses because those are all things that contribute to this kind of arms race in collegiate athletics. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big project and we're really excited about it. Um, and in some ways it's everything that our podcast is, but in a book form. That's awesome. We should mention, by the way, Kareem wrote a great essay in Jacobin a few years ago about why college athletes should be able to unionize. Has actually written a bunch about that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he just a, had a piece come out. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's been one of the the vocal. There, there are some people who are vocally on this. Um, to to some degree, sometimes we don't fully like fully agree. Like Jay Billis is one of the the people right. that we don't always see eye to eye on. But overall, net positive coming from that person. Right. But Kareem is net all all positive. Um, coming from from him. Awesome. I don't think Jay Billis has Kareem Skyhook, but you know, <laughs> so uh, you know, it means more maybe coming from Kareem. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Different from a true one of the best players to ever play the game, and I believe he was a four-year player. I believe as well. So, and uh, 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 he's got experience. He was when he played. It was a weird. It was still a different system. It was three years because yeah. freshmen couldn't play. Oh, three. Yeah. Um, but he. Yeah, yeah. But right. famously. When he joined the freshman team, UCLA were the defending champs. And when the, the upperclassmen played the freshman team with Kareem, the freshman won. So we know what's up there. Um, yeah, not surprising. 
All right. Um, as we close, Derek, is there anything that you have coming out that you want to pitch or have the audience aware of, either in your own writing or for the end of sport pod? No, I'll, I'll just, if you don't mind, um, I'd just like to shout out the podcast and my, and my co-host. Yeah, so yeah. you can reach us. Yeah, we, we do the end of sport podcast. It's on Instagram and Twitter at end of sport pod. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Derek Krim, or you can follow my colleagues at Johanna Mellis or at NKA lamb. Lots of, uh, uh, ats there, but f- feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. Um, and, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Um, as mentioned earlier, I have a piece that came out Sunday at Jacobin looking at the um, the first threatened strike in major American sports history, which was at the 1964 All-Star Game, and looking at how that might serve as inspiration for the players and the rest of us today. Um, I also had a piece come out today at Posting and Toasting, grading the Knicks in the first half of the season. I never assigned grades as a professor, but apparently cannot escape it as a sports writer. And I will have a piece coming out later this week at the Strickland, the Strick.land, imagining Tom Thibodeau as the protagonist in a Jorge Luis Borges short story. So if you're into that weird intersection of interests, like I am, that may be the piece for you. Um, We want to thank Derek Silva again for being here and hope to have um, his compatriots from the end of sport on with us in the future. And certainly when the book comes out, Derek, we'll be happy to have you on again, if not earlier, to hear about that. Jonah, any last words? No, man. Uh, it was great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, very grateful, Derek. That was awesome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was super cool. Thank you. Uh, our producer, as always, is Connor Gillies. And remember, you can follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email any thoughts or questions or suggestions or praise. We actually got a praising email today, which was nice <laughs> to hear at JacobinSports at gmail.com. That is it for this week. We will see you next week. Take care, everybody.